Hey, deserving listeners, I have uh, an old special guest back on the podcast, Rebecca Bloom, to answer your emailed questions. So let's get into your questions here. I am Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. Who are you, Rebecca? I am Rebecca Bloom. I'm a therapist, art therapist, and somatic therapist working in South Seattle. And uh, go and ahead. Painting. And, mad, and currently I'm madly watercolor process painting my way to sanity. Yeah, I've been seeing your posts on Facebook, trees, and uh, like you're – you're painting to cope and to express and to release or, ex- I don't know, release emotions or get support from other people? Yeah. It's called process painting, where you don't, you don't sketch before you just start going. Um, yeah. And it's good stuff. It's really enjoyable. Yeah. I like the one with the trees. That was, that was really good to look at. <laughs> Those show up. Trees, people, eyes. Orbs, swirls, that's my repertoire. (laughs) One of those four things is in probably every image that I make. So as we head into the holiday season, how do you feel about it? I am a a grouchy holiday person. In fact, a couple years ago, I made these cards for my clients that were a huge hit, and they just said, have a good enough December. (laughs) That's how I feel. (laughs) we can all just make it through this time and like no one loses their mind. I think we've done good. Well, being a Jewish woman born on Christmas probably doesn't help, right? It really, it's a deficit. (laughs) Yeah. So every Christmas baby is convinced that there's a huge semi truck of presents that never got delivered to them. So, you know, I have a big chip on my shoulder and then I don't get to see my friends. The few years I've had a birthday party as an adult, I've had to do it like the very first week of December or something like that. Right. Well, and you're, and you're uh, happy as the clam. You you can't wait for the stuffing and the festive lights and. I yeah, I can't. I can't wait. I want it all. My birthday's in there. Thanksgiving, all the Christmas parties, holiday parties, Quanchanimous parties, uh, New Year's. Eve, New Year's Day, a lot of Japanese stuff, you know, thrown in there, mm-hmm. sushi and mm. good, good luck for the new year and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I really look forward to it. My family has a tradition on Christmas Eve where we eat hot dogs and pork and beans. And, <laughs> and, uh, and this year we're doing some kind of event at Safeco Field where there's an ice rink and oh, other, wow. other kinds of holiday festivities. So, I have to look for that. I didn't hear about that. Yeah. Probably because I'm in my grumpy Christmas shutdown period. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So this first email is from patron Christine. She writes, I have heard you discuss that there are mainly two types of students in the program you teach. Young traditional students going, going to the traditional college route right out of high school and students in their 40s who are in a midlife career change. I am very interested in hearing about these older students in Mm. their midlife career change because I'm one of those people. What are their perceptions of traditional higher education? How do they adjust? What are some of the challenges they face? How do they perceive the classroom? How are they perceived by faculty and staff? How do they fit in with peers and with group projects? Rebecca, it wasn't that long ago that you taught Mm -hmm. side by side with me in the MA program at Antioch University, Seattle. How would you answer this question? I mean, I loved those students. They had life experience. <laughs> it made such a big difference. And uh, they had previous work histories, and that work history made things really interesting. Um, and they had, you know, raised families and gone through divorces and gone through heartache, and it made – they tended to be fast learners – And I would say, like, for me, I was a little bit late going back. I went back at 28, um, that I was such a better learner at 28 than I had been at 21. I just shocked myself. Like, I knew how to read a book. I knew how to take notes. I knew how to produce a paper. Um, And I really see that in the older students, that they just kind of, there's a a self-containment factor 
um, that makes them easier to teach, whereas young people tend to be more um, overwhelmed with just the mechanics of it. Absolutely. Completely agree. I mean, it's hard to generalize, of course, because there are younger students who fit the description of the older students that you're providing and vice versa. But in general, yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say currently I have about half students are what we would call older and half I would consider younger and only maybe one or two students who are like fresh out of their BA, meaning that they're 22 years old or something. We, we, in Antioch, we don't tend to get a lot of 22-year-olds. Uh, we tend to get a smattering of 25 to 35, which I would consider the younger side of things. But anyway, yeah, students over 40, as you were saying, Rebecca, I agree. They tend to be better students. They're not as shy. They're more honest. They, they tend to self-disclose more. They're more comfortable in their skin. They're more uh, enjoying, they enjoy graduate school more in my experience. I mean, they're stressed out just like anybody else, but they seem to just have a funner time with the whole experience. I mean, I, I have young students uh, currently and in the past who, who seem to just be, as you say, overwhelmed with the experience. They uh, will see me as a massive authority figure, you know. They'll, they'll have a really hard time um, dealing with the fact that um, I do have authority over them, whereas older people tend to not be as intimidated by that. Did you experience anything like that? Uh, I was kind of a mix. I could be really intimidating to the older students. Um, so, but yes, I, I know what you're saying in terms of like, so the idea that students would think, that when they write some, when they disclose some information about their lives, that we remember that and focus on that and think about how strange they are and are shocked that they're even up and functioning. That tended to be a younger student focus, whereas an older student understands like everyone's life is complicated. Everybody's had interesting experiences. Lots of people make it through life. Um, and they were kind of less focused on, you know, I heard younger students think like that we got together as professors and just like ripped through the details of our students' lives, which we did not do. <laughs> we just didn't, you know, kind of micro look into students' lives like that. So I saw that as the big difference between the two groups. Yeah. What are some challenges that you think older students might have? Well, they have lives, which and, you know, I mean, they tend to have partners or children that need them or, um, I mean, that was really the factor that I would see that they, the idea that they had to stop doing some of the, the well-established things that they did, or, you know, maybe they just, you know, how to prioritize children and partners and houses. Maybe they ran a business, you know, there tended to be a lot of stressors. Um, and people tend to go back to school because, you know, something happened, a divorce, job loss, you know, a death of a parent, like they tended to be in some kind of intense time. And so that kind of stuff of like, I'm thinking of one student in particular who had to speak to her daughter at every break between classes. And I was always just like, would you? please stop doing that so you could like learn how to compartmentalize your life a little bit more. Um, yeah, actually, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that, but I've observed that in some uh, of the older students with their children. Uh, of course, you know, if a child is going through a crisis or something, then that's completely justifiable. But there's other notions of just like, don't you want some time away from your obligations? You know, mm -hmm. aren't there other people who can take over this? And you're heading into a profession where you're going to close the door for eight hours and provide therapy back to back to a bunch of clients and you, you are not available. So you got to tell everyone to back the fuck up, you know? Yeah. I remember I was teaching right as cell phones were dominating our lives. And I used to like try and model, like I have put my cell phone in my office if you choose to make a call, please leave the room before you do it. And the younger students could, and the older students could not. <laughs> Interesting. 
Yeah. So. Well, and you know, it's been how long since you tatted Antioch? Like seven years, six years. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure now it's like just one giant phone bank. Yeah. It's, it's worse now. I, and I suspect it'll just get worse as time goes on. Um, I, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before. I have to now tell people at the first day of class that if I see a cell phone, I will point it out. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. uh, I don't want it, but if you have an emergency, like, you know, a justifiable reason, then a hundred percent, just let me know before class and you can absolutely keep your cell phone out. But otherwise, why is your cell phone out? Like you should be paying attention. You should be supporting your classmates. You should be learning. And like, if you can't learn how to disengage from that for just three hours, then I don't know what to tell you. Um, yeah. So Antioch is set up to, accommodate for those challenges since we are a program that allows people to go at their own pace. People can Mm -hmm. go as long as six years, meaning that they can take. I didn't know there was a limit. That's good to know. Yeah. There's a six year limit. (laughs) Um, Move along. (laughs) Very few people reach that limit, but, but usually it's because of these issues, right? They're, they have kids and maybe parents who are ill or something, which means that, if you did a six year long program, that would mean that you would take one class a quarter and some quarters you would be actually taking no classes because if you spread everything out over six years, there's not enough to go. There's not enough to do every quarter. So, Mm -hmm. and you can also do it in two years, you know, if you take a full load. So, uh, whereas some programs, they don't allow for that sort of thing. So I think Antioch just tends to attract, you know, a wider range of ages. And um, I will say uh, that having known people who've done it really slow, weird issues come up, like requirements for classes have changed over the time that they were going that slow, or it somehow becomes harder to get licensing later. Um, so if there's any way that you can just power through, I, I would recommend it. I know that everybody can't, but um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and you also asked, uh, Paige and Christine, how they are perceived by faculty. Um, I think Rebecca spoke to that a little bit. I, I would say it depends on the program and the MA programs. I think they hold similar views that me and Rebecca do, but in the PsyD program, the psychologist program, they're switching away from the traditional Antioch Seattle model and trying to appeal more towards younger students because due to their APA accreditation requirements, they have to follow a cohort model where you can't go at your own pace. Mm-hmm. You, you have to take the classes as they are given to you, which is full time. Uh, so for people who have lives and kids and whatnot, it's really hard for them to, to accommodate that. Whereas for a 22 year old, it's their life is set up to accommodate that. And when you go to an internship, you have to go to an APA-approved internship. And and in Washington State, I think there's like 10 or something or five or something. Yeah. So the chance of you getting one in Seattle is extremely Mm. slim. So Mm -hmm. you'll very likely have to move for your final year of your program and do an internship somewhere else. And not many people over... 35 have a life that allows them to just pick up and move for a year, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and I've heard that about society programs in general that they like them young because they're moldable. Yeah, maybe that's another factor too. I couldn't really speak to that. Um, I could see that, honestly. Uh, but yeah, so that is that for those questions. Um, let's go on to another question here. Patron Hilly wrote in. Therapy about she wants to know about therapy office ambiance and logistics. Mm, my one of my favorite topics. Yeah, because you're a landlord. You're the yes. man. You're the man. I, uh, I am the man in many many ways. Uh, what's your office like? Why is it like that? Do you have a couch? What's your chair like? Mm-hmm. Do you have air conditioning? Clocks? Is it private? Mm-hmm. Visual and audio? What's your answer mm-hmm. to that, Rebecca? Oh, so much time spent thinking about this. Um, so. I have a couch. Uh, I've been in therapy offices that are two chairs. Um, I, I'm a couch fan, and I, I'm always fascinated where people end up on the couch. That's always like 
Some people are huddled up in the, the corner and some people take up the whole couch. Um, and then I have so many clocks. I have a clock just for the clients to see on one wall. I have facing the other way. I have a clock just for me to see. Um, no overhead lighting, lamps only. Uh, I have a plant in my office, even though I kill plants. I have to buy a plant about once a year um, because plants, you know, people like that plant feel. Um, so, so much thought has gone into it. What do you uh, think about me in, in that, in my office, I've never had a clock for the clients? Really? Yeah. I don't know what to say about it. I mean, you could probably say about that. Why do you make that choice? I want clients not to think about it. I want them to not be focused on time. I mean, some people are, you know, because they'll, they want to get to a certain amount of topics and they, all they have to do is turn their head and see the clock that I look at, but it's, Mm -hmm. it's not very convenient for them. It's not within eyesight for them. You know what I mean? Um, Plus they have their phones often just on their lap. And so they can just look at that. But but yeah, I just feel like I'm more traditional in that way. I want people to just free associate and just kind of kick back and, you know, luxuriate in some free space, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely give clues as to where we are in the session based on a routine that we will have with long-term clients. And so I think they kind of know, oh, we must be wrapping up here or something. Um, but yeah, I mean, the downside is, clients are at a disadvantage, right? Because they can't keep track of what's happening. Right. As I can. And, um, and that being said, I have many clients that when they're in the flow, don't notice that the clock is there. And, you know, I'll start wrapping up. And I just last week, someone was like, no way. And I'm like, yeah, like you, there's the clock right there. Um, so even having it doesn't mean that people are focused on it. Yeah, I have a couch too. Um, I and I think, I mean, I do family and couples therapy. I don't see families currently, but about half of my couple, all oh, about half of my clients right now are couples, and I think that couch sitting is good for that. I also see groups of supervisees in my office, and so I um, will sometimes have like five supervisees in my office, and so uh, it's just easier to have couches and whatnot. Um, my own chair that I use is the chair I'm, I sit in when I podcast as well. It's it's a chair that I got in the Jewish Community Center um, on Mercer Island. The I love the, that uh, place. Yeah, the JCC. Yeah, the um, it has a, a what do you call it? A secondhand store or a thrift store? Mm-hmm. And I, this would have been I don't know eighteen years ago or something. That's an old ass chair. Well, and it was old to begin with, right? <laughs> And I, it, it looks like a chair from like a den of a senator or something. Um, and it's, it's fixed, you know, it doesn't have swivel. It's just, you know, it has the four legs and it's pretty big for the bottom, if that makes any sense. Like it, it's not, it's not small. So I can kind of, I like it and it has armrests. So mm-hmm. I can kind of like, cause I'm a fidgeter when I sit. So I can I can sit Indian style in the in the chair I can or cross leg I guess is probably a better term um, I can I can lean on one side I can lean on the other side and um, over the years I've tried to get other chairs for myself more professional chairs shall we say or you know more expensive chairs for that matter and found that no chair comes close to this the com- chair. to the comfort of this chair. And a couple of years ago, I actually had this chair reupholstered <laughs> professionally with like There's a lot of love in this chair with actual leather. Like, you know, you had it's the sort of reupholstering that you have to use nails and all that kind of stuff, okay. you know, and professional awesome. people with, you know, you know, there's a professional shop in Roosevelt that I took it to. And I've never done that before. You know, I've never reupholstered something. I To me, that was something for super fancy people. But I was like, I have no other choice. I can't find another chair that is this good, you know? And at the time, it was completely falling apart. Like, there were rips and and the stuffing was flying out. And so, 
um, that's my chair. What, what chair do you use? So I do trauma treatment. So I need a chair that fully supports me. So my chair has a really high back so that my head has something to rest against. And it's really wide so that my, although this wasn't the plan when I got it, my dog also joins me on the chair often. Um, it also does a lot of stuff that I don't have room for anymore. Like it leans back and all that fancy stuff. Uh, but I, a lot of therapists have chairs that don't support their necks. And so I've just found in kind of long-term repetitive stress, I really need that. Like a chair that has a lot of neck support. Um, and a lot of people I know who do trauma treatment, the way that they sit and the amount that their chair supports their body is really important. Yeah, I agree that the repetitive stress of sitting can be a massive problem for therapists. I mean, if you think about it, it's like if you're a typical therapist, you're probably sitting in your therapist chair for 30 hours straight a week and without any breaks. And you might even be kind of stressed out with countertransference or whatnot and your sort of uh, tension builds and you just repeat that for 25 years, you can imagine that lower back problems can become an issue and, and they do. So um, I try to tell my supervisees to make sure that they have ways of managing that, you know, stretching during the day, um, just monitoring how they feel. Uh, I will tell therapists that um, if your, if your back starts to get uncomfortable uh, do what you need to do in session as a therapist to make sure that you're okay. Um, even just stand up and, and talk to your client leaning up against the wall. <laughs> like there's no reason why you have to destroy your body in the process of, of doing this job, you know? Yeah. I recently have had a lot of friends who are therapists who've been through car accidents and they have to radically change how they practice. They have to stand up during sessions. They can't sit the whole time. Right. Um, it's hard on your body. Yeah. It's really hard. The other thing that's totally random and weird is that I replace my rug off it. And I think it's like a transference thing. Like I, I must somehow feel that the rug absorbs a lot of the work. Interesting. It's, so my clients often notice like, oh, you changed the rug again. Um, but I think I'm doing it to kind of in some kind of weird space cleansing uh, and who knows if it works or not, but I, it's, I do change my rug a lot. What about air conditioning? Do you have that? We have it in the building. Yes. Uh, yeah. Air conditioning is a massive consideration. I have a supervisee right now who has an office with a wonderful view of Lake Union that, you know, she's on East Lake. Mm -hmm. Familiar with that area. Yes. And, you know, can see, Gasworks and downtown and West or uh, no, sorry, she can see East like she's on Westlake. And during the summer, that office becomes no joke, like 120 degrees. It yeah, is, no when, and when you close the door, it you know oh. it is intense because uh, it's just a box with windows, you know, okay. with the sun just like beating in. And the weird thing about Seattle is that a lot of places still don't have air conditioning because one, uh, we haven't really needed it because global warming wasn't a thing. And two, uh, um, even if you did need it, you would only need it for like maybe six weeks out of the year. And so it's, it's a huge expense for some people. And so they just don't do it. And so, um, yeah, having good air conditioning is a massive, massive consideration. My, my last office that I had, I did. We didn't have air conditioning, and and it was one of those. We had windows that faced where the sun was, and it would get pretty hot. And so the only option I had was I had a portable air conditioner, one of those. They looked like a little refrigerator, mm -hmm. and it was super loud, you know, because I'm in this. It's just you know I'm talking to my clients in this this, you know, very loud air conditioner is rattling away, basically just like three feet away from me. And it was, it was a pain in the ass. So having, having air conditioning, you know, 
making sure whenever you, you know, rent a place like Rebecca's place, uh, making, you know, if, if you're looking in the fall or the winter, uh, make sure you find out exactly what kind of climate that room gets when, during the summertime, because, because basically there were times when I was like, should I just not see clients this month? Because, (laughs) because this is unbearable. It's really hard, you know? Um, so yeah, like I would, so I would get the, I would, I would open up the windows and I'd open up my door in between clients and the, the room would cool down. The clients come and I'd close the doors and I'd close the windows and you know, get everything. Yeah. And then, and then I would just slowly see my (laughs) clients foreheads getting wetter and wetter. You know, I could just tell like, Oh man, they're, I, I can tell they're getting hotter and hotter as the session is going on. It's just, it's awful. Well, and in my building, it's an old building from the 70s. I don't think there's any insulation in the walls. And so the south side of the building gets extremely hot, and there's only one office, and the waiting room's on that side. And then on my side, we tend to stay pretty cool, but there's a couple months a year where there's kind of like a fight for dominance in the HVAC system between the staff of like who's built, whose office is going to be the perfect temperature. Um, because my office is freezing, their office is baking. Um, so, you know, we each have our own heaters and coolers in our own office to try and get it right. But, you know, clients want to be comfortable, mostly. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, kind of an issue of trying to help them. And making a space where they feel comfortable, they're more likely to open up. So, you know, there are some real... Um, ways in which the space does impact the work. Maybe there's some we could start called like hot therapy or something where you, you get yeah, super hot and sweaty and then you break their St- egos down. You stretch them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, I'm, you know, I was, I'm thinking about like when I was in the South Bronx and the walls were just the worst institutional mustard brown ever or and then the hallway would be pepto-bismol pink and i would think nothing good can happen here <laughs> yeah i i will watch videos of my supervisees at their agencies mm-hmm. and they'll videotape their sessions and their offices are often the most depressing spaces i've ever seen <laughs> they're just like they look like a broom closet <laughs> and and in these agencies you can hear people talking out in the hallway, mm-hmm. which, which means you might be able to hear what's happening in the session if you were being quiet in the hallway, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's a lot of things. I, I, I one time was hired by an agency to be their direct clinical director, I suppose you could say. And the first day I walked through the agency and I noticed that many of the offices did not have privacy to random people just walking by oh, wow. and, and they had been in operation for years. And I'm like, so when someone walks by, they can just look in and see people in session. They're like, mm-hmm. yeah. And I'm like, that is unacceptable. It's so unethical to have that happen, you know? And so uh, there was a bit of a kerfuffle and a struggle to get them to put up uh, some kind of, you know, opaque paper or something to uh, make it so that it was private. Um, and there's lots of things like that. I, I would say another thing for me just to, to wrap this up is I've, I've had home offices for the past 18 years and I've lived in one, two, three, four, I don't know, five or six homes in that time. And every office has been different because every home mm-hmm. is different, right? And some, sometimes in the original homes I lived in, my office was the living room. I just saw people in my living room because it wasn't um, an annoyance to anyone that I was living with. And so, um, you know, there are accommodations that you have to make. But the main thing is, is that it's private, it's comfortable, no one can hear what's happening, there's no noise distracting people, it, you know, um, I don't know. I, I find that home offices can absolutely be um, uh, use in that way. Uh, you you haven't had a home office, right? No, I wouldn't want anyone in my home. It's a little chaotic. Um, but I was, as you were talking, I was thinking. So my office right now is right on Rainier 
And oftentimes, right as I'm starting a guided meditation, you know, an enormous 18 wheeler comes down right near and shakes the whole building. Um, and also now in Seattle, it's really hard to find a quiet office. Like there is so much construction going on. That's, yeah. I mean, that's why I had to leave my last office. They were literally dismantling the building around me. Right. I think that's another benefit of having a home office is that you're usually farther away from noise, from traffic and other kinds of things. Um, yeah. Uh, I, my, my, one of my therapists in the past, she changed offices and it was actually on Eastlake, really Eastlake. And she went to a building where the, uh, the, the window of the office faced Eastlake and the windows are really old. And so, yeah, the, the noise was very distracting to me. And I remember feeling like, man, I miss your old office. Mm-hmm. The other problem was the door between her office and the lobby was so thin and, and I think had a big gap in the underneath it that, that it was undoubtedly anything I was saying in, in the session could easily be heard from the lobby because I would be in the lobby sometimes and hear every word that the clients were saying oh, no. in session. Yeah. And so if you're out there and you're a therapist, you know, get on that stuff. There are fairly inexpensive solutions to that. You go to Home Depot, there are, there's a whole section for door sound, um, acoustic issues. And, um, you know, obviously the white noise makers can also be used and that kind of thing. But the other thing is just making sure that you only rent places that that have that kind of um, accommodation. Yeah, and not everything is set up for that. Like I had someone come and sublease from me because she had been at a place that was mostly acupuncture and massage therapists, and there was no soundproofing because you don't really need it in that line of work. And so it's interesting. I mean, people think like, oh, a healing arts center, this will work for me. And, you know, not necessarily. Right. Um, there's a level of privacy that we need that is not typical. And actually there is a massage therapist. I have one massage therapist in my suite and this other woman wanted to come in. And I was like, I don't want another massage therapist. The way they use the space is really different. The amount of time that they talk to their clients in the hallway um, and then the way that they pop in and out as their clients are undressing, they just use the space totally differently. Um, Right. Because therapists, now that I think about it, now that you're saying this, it's like therapists sit in their office quietly. When the client arrives, the client sits quietly when the time comes for the session to begin, the therapist walks out, might not even say anything, might just, just might just give that a look. knowing look. Yeah. It's on. Therapy <laughs> is on. We're the about client, to do it. Yeah. The client stands up, briskly walks into the office, the door is closed, end of, you know, end of any lobby uh, sound making. Whereas, yeah, I could see massage people or other professionals. It's, it's not quite as um, quiet as that. Yeah. All right. Well, let's take a break. And when we get back, let's answer some more emails. What do you say, Rebecca? I'm ready. All right. We're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast, do so now. Go to patreon.com. When people become patrons of the podcast, you get access to hundreds of deep dives into various different things that are only available to patrons. What would you like to plug, Rebecca? One of your books, both of your books? Uh, if you are, yeah, I, I got a new book in the works. Uh, it's going to be on vicarious trauma. Uh, and I have done about 40 uh, watercolors that are going to illustrate the book. So it should be a pretty unique thing. More, more to come soon. Oh, and people have sent messages to my Facebook page. It's very sweet. They want to be uh, friends. So if you want to keep in touch with me, better places to keep in touch with me would be to follow my business page on Facebook, uh, Rebecca Bloom, or I'm very active on Instagram. Um, I don't know. Our text is my handle there. So follow me there. Our text? Yes, it's a it's a riff on T Rex. <laughs> oh, but 
but it's also a double entendre because it's our words. It's our text. It was a DJ name that I never took. Um, you know. You yeah, yeah. You don't have to explain your your weird Insta <laughs> tag with me. All right. Um, another person here asks, how can clients get more out of therapy? Rebecca, what do you think? You know, I ask myself this question all the time. Um, I mean, clients really have to be motivated for treatment. So you'll meet some of your clients just want to talk about their day and just need a safe place. Some people are really motivated for behavior change. And that's a really different session. Um, you know, some of, some of my clients are under too much stress to really change. And therapy is kind of a safe holding space as they sort through whatever they're sorting through. So, I don't know. Does that answer that or is that too vague? No, I think that, you know, it's it's a vague question because to me it really depends on the client and where they're at and what their goals are and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I can only kind of tell you what I've seen people do. Um, clients, some of my clients will, every once in a while, they'll just start the session by saying, so what are we doing in therapy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or, uh, what's happening or what do you, what's, what do you think was happening? Am I getting any better? You know? So as a client, feel free to ask that question, you know, just be like, what am I, how do you see me in therapy? What's happening right now? And some therapists will have, you know, succinct answers at the ready. And some therapists will have a harder time answering that question. And, you know, it's up to you as a client to decide how you, how you want to deal with that. Um, I, I always have answers to that question because I'm always thinking about it. I'm, I, I'm, it's, it's not like something at the forefront of my mind all the time, but I'm definitely uh, at times sort of thinking, oh, okay, that's an issue that I know they want to change and I think I know how to get them there, you know, and I think I know the process that needs, and I, through my experience and other kinds of things that, and so I, uh, I just have that in my head, but anyway, other clients will come to session with goals. They'll just be like, okay, I don't want to just meander today. You know, I want to do X, Y, and Z. So that's another thing you can do. Also, some clients will take notes during sessions. Um, not a lot of notes, obviously, like, you know, they'll jot down maybe one or two little things. And because, you know, you're in therapy, you're processing a lot of things, you're, you're going a lot of different directions. And there could be some aha moments or some pretty significant discoveries. And when you leave your office, you, you know, when you leave your, the, your therapist's office, you get back in your car, you enter traffic, you go back to work or you go back home and, you know, after a few hours, it's gone. You've forgotten it. So sometimes it's good to jot some things down to, and revisit it throughout the week. Um, so that's another thing you can do. Also, another thing that people will do is they'll be mindful of the time. You know, my clients can't because I don't let them look at the clock. Because <laughs> you're torturing them. <laughs> some kind of weird control issue that you've got going on. But, you know, however you want to phrase it, that's great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but if your therapist isn't a control freak like me, you can, you know, keep your eye on the clock and uh, try to monitor your time. You know, like if you're a sort of a talkative person and you find yourself in sessions going on like 30 minute tangents that are kind of interesting to you because you're, you're on a roll. But when you really sit back and think about it, it's not really what you want to be talking about. There's more important things. Um, just try to be mindful of that. Also, another thing that I would say to clients who have these questions, it's typically because they're shy and they don't know how to ask their therapist. You know, you have a right to speak your mind and any, any good therapist will absolutely invite this kind of conversation. So you should absolutely speak your mind and say, I feel like I'm wasting time in therapy or I feel like you are not focusing on what I want you to focus on. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you should be able to do that. And again, if your therapist reacts badly to that, then you're probably in the wrong office. Um, so don't be shy. Say what you want. Do, you know, 
get get it off your chest. Now, your therapist might disagree with you. They might be like, "Well, I see you, and I get that, but you know, here's some other things that I would like to offer." Um, that's fine. So, uh, but at the very least, take control of your therapy. I I have some clients. It's not very often, and I don't have any currently like this, but I've had them in the past where they just sort of sit down on the couch and they just like, "Okay." therapize me better (laughs) yeah and and it's like that's not how therapy works therapy Mm -hmm. is driven by the client and i am with you in the passenger seat or the back seat or the trunk or something i don't know but i am not the driver i and i can't be the driver it does not work when i'm the driver and it's actually extremely frustrating to me when clients do that to me you know it's just like uh trying to metaphorically force a client from the passenger seat into the driver's seat is mm-hmm. can be very difficult. Have you found that to be true? Oh yeah. I mean, you get that client that kind of looks at you like, okay, make the magic happen. And it's like, this is, you need, you need to bring yourself here. You know, your stories, your content is what will uh, change this dynamic. And as you were talking, I was realizing one of the unique things about art therapy is that, uh, clients can choose to take the image that they've made out of the session. And often that becomes their reminder over the week of kind of what they've discovered about themselves. Oh yeah. Um, so yeah, I could see, you know, taking a minute to jot those notes down, but I, I love that quote, work half as hard as your client, um, that they should really be bringing the, the content. So here's another email from an anonymous patron. They write, I'm in therapy. I have now been with my therapist for four years. It took me years to find a therapist that I click with, someone who really gets me. I come from a very dysfunctional family. As a result, I have a lot of anxiety with relationships. My therapist really helps with that. He makes me feel validated and heard. He knows the most about me, never judges me, and has heard my innermost secrets. He has helped me with marital issues as well, even sexual issues. Recently, I have been finding myself becoming incredibly attached to my therapist. Mm. I often think of him and I count the days to our next appointment. I am developing a fear now that he will think I am getting too clingy and he will lose interest in helping me. He hasn't said so, but the thought haunts me. I am also beginning to have sexual fantasies about him. Sometimes when I have a hard time reaching full orgasm with my husband, I think of my therapist and it gets me over the edge. Uh, Rebecca, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, These are some classic attachment issues. Um, You know, the experience of having healthy attachment with somebody can be a really kind of life-changing experience and that therapists can begin to represent for the client all kinds of things, both maternal and erotic. So this is actually kind of normal. And um, hopefully you could bring it up with your therapist and it would be some powerful work that you guys do together. Um, You might want to start with the easier stuff of I'm afraid you're, I'm going to lose you. Um, Maybe later bring up the orgasm part, but um, I don't know. I think this is pretty, I think it means that the client is attached to the therapist. How about you? Yeah, absolutely. I get an email like this probably every few days. So, and I've talked about it before on the podcast, but because I continue to get more emails, I I feel like I should just periodically check in about this with people because I know a lot of listeners are in this situation. Um, So, you know, anonymous patron, you're not alone for sure. Yeah, exactly what Rebecca said. When you are relationally traumatized or abandoned or Uh, You have a life in which you've never really had someone who was really there for you and really loyal and really took care of you and didn't narcissistically, um, you know, use you as a tool for their own needs or something. Um, When you grow up with a life like that and then, you know, you're 35 and you go into therapy with a relationally oriented therapist and you, over time, you realize, wow, I actually feel really heard by this person. And this person is not trying to use me. And this person is there for me, you know, here, you know, in, in this very regular fashion. Well, your heart is going to explode with everything. <laughs> You're just going to be like, I want this person all the time. I can't wait until I talk to this person. 
you know, every nerve in my body is oriented toward this person, sexuality, attachment, maternal, paternal, friendship, uh, romance, you know, a therapist, teacher, mentor, you know, everything just gets oriented towards this person, naturally speaking, because when you're three years old or one year old, that's what happens with your parents. That's, that's what you missed out on in all likelihood. I mean, you know, you, the erotic part is a, shall we say, a two-year-old version of, of sensuality. So it's a different kind of sensuality. It's not in the, an adult eroticism, but usually. But we have that mechanism as a part of our biology and psychology early in life that actually facilitates attachment. And when you're deprived that and you're suddenly given that later in life, then you, all of it just gets poured towards that person. So that's the way it's seen by any competent therapist. But that does not take away how scary it is for you. Of course, it's terrifying because this client, this therapist could close their practice. They could, mm-hmm. die. They could die. They they could conceivably fire you as a client if they wanted to. Like it's not unheard of. And I get emails from clients about that. They'll be like, you know, one, my, I had a, a listener who's, uh, she was very attached to her therapist and the therapist died. Therapist mm-hmm. died like a couple, couple months ago. She actually went to the funeral, which was really beautiful. She was asking me if she should go. And I was like, mm. I, don't, I can't tell you what to do, but geez, I would. <laughs> if I were you. And she, she really enjoyed it and, you know, met the family and everything. Or more often, I get emails from clients telling me that their therapist has decided to terminate early because either the therapist is um, also having erotic countertransference and doesn't know how to deal with it, or the therapist is afraid of how intense the uh, needs are of the of the client. Um, I would say that uh, anonymous patron, your therapist doesn't sound like that kind of therapist. Uh, competent relationally oriented therapists are not afraid of this kind of work. Like for me, uh, I do this kind of work all the time. I've had clients direct all their nerves towards me, you know, and <laughs> fall, fall in love with me and want to have sex with me and see me as, you know, all knowing, all good. And they can't wait to talk to me. And, 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 you know, I see that and I'm there for them. And, you know, it's an intense experience for me too, but I know the path, which is, as they heal through our relationship and get what they need, then over time they don't need me as much anymore and, and they can actually uh, direct their nerves towards other people, you know, more functionally. Um, so it's just a matter of time before that happens. In the same way that as you become five years old, seven years old, you don't 100% depend on your mother anymore, you know. So, so there's all that. Um, but yeah, it's terrifying to clients. Uh, because of you know the reasons that I said and and there's no real way to avoid that terror like you just have to sit with it and be with it and express it and get support with it tell your therapist about it feel free to ask your therapist so you're not going to close your practice anymore soon are you or uh, you're not at I'm not at risk of you firing me anytime soon or I just I just I just want some reassurance you know I've had clients ask me that directly and or I intuit that they want me to comment on that. And I'll just tell them, look, I'm planning on being a therapist until I, you know, I die in between sessions. I just, you know, I just croak or something. I'm like 90 years old and I just, you know, it would, you know, so it sucks to be that client that shows up and finds me, you know, croaked, but, um, so I don't have any issues after that. Yeah. I plan to be a therapist. Uh, ironically, it was the best session ever, you know, for them because I because I didn't say anything. But <laughs> but uh, <laughs> oh, um, your jokes—they're so funny, Kirk. So no, I'm just I'm just envisioning like an SNL skit in my head of just like um, I don't know, just a recurring character, you know, the dead therapist or something. Anyway, um, so uh, I so I'll tell I'll tell clients. Um, I'm 47. I will probably be a therapist realistically for at least another 25, 30 years. One, two, I would never terminate with a client because they needed me too much. You know, that would never happen. Um, the only way I would terminate with you is if you threatened to kill me or you were stalking me, you know, like 
in a very significant way. Like minor stalking, I probably wouldn't terminate you, honestly. <laughs> I mean, minor stalking, that's all any of us do these days. <laughs> uh, or if you were, I don't know, just so completely off the hook, um, combative with me, or you brought a gun to session and threatened me or something like, like there, I, which has never happened by the way. And so like, so I've told people, look, you know, there's, there's really no chance now, you know, I can't guarantee things, but you can, you can rest assured that, um, and the other thing is, is I've understand how important your healing and your development is and how, uh, important it is for me to be stable in that. So know that I will, I will never even suggest that we should terminate, you know, because, uh, that will come from you one day you will, after you heal sufficiently, you'll be like, I think I'm done. And that will be from you. And that that's when it will happen. It will not happen in all likelihood from me. So, so feel free to ask your therapist about that. Um, like I said, any good relational therapist will, will, will be, you know, probably better than I am in terms of <laughs> responding to that. They won't, they won't talk about dying in their chair. Let's just put it that way. So speaking of all of this, I got to go. Oh, you do? I got to go see some clients. You're terminating with me. I'm terminating with you. I thought I'd let you do that big speech and then I would just flat out terminate with you. Or <laughs> it would just be dead silence and I'd be like, Rebecca, Rebecca, Rebecca. <laughs> Because I don't have any abandonment issues and I don't try and trigger anyone else's abandonment issues. It's just not how I roll. Well, thanks for joining me, Rebecca. It's been a while. I know. I hope to be back. Let's get back at it. And uh, I'd like to be more around. Um, things have mellowed out. I'm okay. back in the country. I've got, I got all the, the pieces in place these days. Well, it's pretty easy over Zoom. Um, you know, yeah. I, pretty, pretty convenient for all considered right yeah i uh, this is my first zoom experience i would give it a thumbs up yeah yeah it's better than skype well that does it for that episode of psychology in seattle in which at the end we talked about technical things uh, you know internet uh, communications platforms for your benefit uh please take care of yourself because oh i care about you so i hope i hope you take care of yourself how's that i don't know that's no it's super are you kidding me <laughs>